We don't really know very much about Daniel's family background, his life prior to the exile to Babylon. We feel that he probably is part of a royal family, part of the nobility of the Jews in Judah. And so when they are conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonians are taken away from their homeland. He may be about 15 years old, along with some of his other friends, and they whisked away to a foreign country, never seen, didn't know anything about it, and uh, suddenly they have to make a life there. As a young teenager then, his life was turned completely upside down by events around him. And yet the Bible tells us that he became the advisor to the four most powerful men on earth, one after another. For the next 70 years, Daniel would be an advisor to the rulers of the world. The last of these was King Cyrus of Persia, and Daniel served him until he was about 85 years old. So for about 70 years, almost the entire time of this exile, he's next to the king, whoever's the king. It's an amazing story. Daniel was a prophet of God, but not the usual kind. He didn't have God speak to him, and then this message came right through him to other people. He was a prophet, however, because Jesus called him a prophet, and the kind of prophet that he was was that he saw what was happening. He saw in the king's dreams and visions uh, what God was saying, and he was able to interpret those dreams, and then to speak not to his own people, but to the Babylonians, and then to the Persians. As God was giving witness to what he was doing in the world, he used Daniel in a very powerful way. And what's more, this man's character was remarkable. This man's integrity was stellar. Both in his words and his deeds, we can admire Daniel. We don't know anything bad about him. As far as I can see, as we read his book called Daniel, there are three main purposes for God sharing that with us. One, that he wanted to show his faithfulness to his people. He wanted to show that even though they're in exile, even though they're going through all these trials as a result of their own sin, he didn't abandon them. He was with them. He was teaching them. He was guiding them. And someday he was going to bring them back. He's going to bring them back to Jerusalem. They're going to reestablish the kingdom of Judah. Secondly, the purpose of Daniel is to show that God is sovereign over all nations. He's communicating that very clearly to Nebuchadnezzar and to Belshazzar and to Darius and to Cyrus. He's He's showing them, you know, you think you're all powerful. You think that you're the mightiest nation on earth, but really I'm sovereign and you should be worshiping me, not all the other gods that people have dreamed up along the line. Third reason for Daniel is so that we would see the example of somebody who stood for God, somebody who had courage, somebody who had faith, someone who never compromised himself or his convictions. Why is that? Because compromise is so easy, isn't it? It's constantly there. Always there's this message coming from someone, well, you should go ahead, and everybody else is doing that. You should go ahead because nobody will care. What difference will it make? You may get a little bit ahead of where you are now if you're willing to just slide that in there, if you're willing to just cut the corner a little bit, if you're willing to just tell a small lie so that you can achieve a good result. All these different lies come, and we are tempted to compromise. When the nation of Judah then was defeated and sent into Babylon in 586 B.C., many of these promising young men and women were taken over, and these young men like Daniel and his friends were brought into the king's palace, and they were taught the ways of the Babylonians. It says in the first chapter that the Babylonians had in mind to take the brightest, the best, the most handsome, the most uh, capable, the most potential-filled young men, 
and to train them for the king's service over a period of about three years. That's roughly getting a Ph.D. in Babylonian uh, uh, culture. And so he's going through this process, but he's tempted to compromise in that. In the midst of a completely secular, godly, godless uh, culture, they were able to hold on to their convictions. They didn't compromise their faith. They didn't compromise their morals, their values, their standards, the principles by which God had said to live. Are we that steadfast? Are we that strong in our convictions? I wonder. I wonder. Daniel and the other Judeans did not belong in Babylon. It was not home. They were told to settle into their new place. They said, you're going to be here a long time. You might as well get settled in, get a home, get everything you need for that because it's not going to be anytime soon. You'll go back, but someday you will. This is not your home. They knew that they were never going to fit in because they were citizens somewhere else. They were aliens living in a foreign land, strangers to their culture and their society, and they longed for the day that they would be able to go home. Three real stories illustrate how these guys refused to compromise. The first is very soon. As they're being brought up in the king's way, they're tempted to to eat the king's table, the food that was there. And they had restrictions that God had given them. They refused to compromise themselves. Second story is the three, three friends of Daniel are tempted to bow down to the altar, to the, to the throne uh, and, and uh, the statue that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had raised. And they refused to do that. And then Daniel refuses to stop praying when there's a law that says you can only pray to the king. Ayn Rand said, in any compromise between food and poison, it is only death that can win. <laughs> you, know, you try and introduce just a little bit, and you die. And we must remember that, that if we compromise with evil in any way, only the evil wins. We can't win when we do that. Nothing can be gained from the compromise. So this first story is the uh, Babylonians are teaching them how to become Babylonians, good leaders of the future, they introduced the king's table, and it's got wine, and it's got uh, a lot of food that was restrictive to them. They can't eat that. That's not part of their dietary laws. And Daniel immediately has to stand up and say to the steward, he says, I can't eat that. I can't do that. Laws of my God won't allow me to do that. And he says, well, I'm going to get in trouble if you don't eat that. King's going to be mad because you guys are going to look terrible in a few days. And Daniel says, let's put it to a test. Ten days, you give us water, you give us vegetables. That's all. We'll go to a vegetarian diet. We won't drink any of your wine or anything. And let's see at the end of 10 days who's better off. At the end of 10 days, of course, Daniel and his friends are shining. They're just like, they're healthier. They're glowing uh, with, with strength. And the steward can tell right off. He says, uh, that's a pretty good diet. And he makes everybody else switch over to that, which I'm sure pleased them a lot, you know, to give up all those rich things that they were eating before that. So that's the first test. He stands the test. It's not... Huge consequences to it, but big enough that he's not going to compromise even in small things. Second test is bigger. Now we have Daniel's friends. We're not sure where he is. He must be off on a journey. But uh, the king decides he's going to build this golden image. Maybe something like this, but it's 90 feet tall. It's 9 feet wide. And he says, hey, there's law now that this is the only thing you can bow down to. And when you hear the music, when the, the band starts playing, everybody bows down to show your allegiance, to show your loyalty, to show that you are willing to, to uh, surrender, submit yourself to my image. Of course, Daniel's friends can't do that. God's law says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to any graven image. 
that man may make. And so when the music starts, they don't bow down. Everybody else does. So they're brought before King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's furious. He says, you know, you've got to bow down. If you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you into this fiery furnace. You're going to die instantly. It is so hot in there. And they answer him in an amazing way. They say, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. He will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your God. We will not worship the image of gold that you have set up. And so King Nebuchadnezzar has them thrown in there. Even the guys throwing them in die because the heat is so intense. Within a few minutes, he sees these guys that were thrown in there bound or up walking around now free, not bothered by the heat at all. In fact, there's a fourth man walking in the fire with these three guys. We believe that that could have been the preexistent Son of God, Jesus himself, the Spirit of God at least being there with him, the presence of God showing, hey, you're okay here. Man decided he was going to kill you for this but I'm protecting you. And they came out of that fire unsinged. They came out unscathed. No evidence that they'd even been in the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar got the message. He says, the the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's the true God. Bow down before that God. Third story, Daniel in prayer, Daniel 6. We read where Daniel's later faced with a similar Experience. His enemies are looking for a way to get rid of him because the king has in mind that he's going to elevate him to second in the kingdom. And they don't like that. He has such high moral standards, however, that they can't figure out what's, what's the, the, the little chink in the armor. What's, what's the way that we can get to this guy? He's got such integrity. He lives such a, a good life. He's such a good worker. He's so valuable to the king. We can't come up with anything. There's no dirt on him. Except he really loves his God. He really serves his God. And if we could come up with a way to make him look bad because of his obedience to God, we've got him. And so they get the king to issue a decree that you, for the next 30 days, cannot bow down. You cannot pray to anyone but the king. And if you do, you're going to be thrown into this lion's den full of ferocious, hungry lions. Immediate death. When Daniel hears the decree, he goes home, it says in the Bible, and it says that he went upstairs to the upstairs room where the windows opened up towards Jerusalem. And three times a day, it says, he got down on his knees and he prayed and he gave thanks to God just as he had done before. Just as he had done before. Didn't matter what the man's laws were. Didn't matter what the king said. Didn't matter what the threat was. He did what he knew was right, what he knew God wanted him to do. This landed him in the den of lions from which God protected him. God's law superseded man's law. And Daniel refused to compromise himself. This is exactly what we're told to do in the New Testament, under a new covenant, under a new promise with God. As we relate to God through Jesus Christ, he wants us to be people of integrity with no compromise. 1 Peter 2.11 and 12 says this, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain to abstain from uh, the sinful desires which wage war, that try to, to defeat you. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Aliens and strangers in the world. Aliens 
living on earth temporarily. Hebrews picks this up, chapter 11. It says all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not perceive the things promised or receive them. They only saw them. They welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and that they were strangers, aliens on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. See, they understood. They understood that they were aliens. We are aliens. We don't belong here. We're in a culture that God is not able to bless. But we are to live with the purpose and with the integrity and with the values and with the faith that God has instilled in us as followers of Jesus Christ. We are here for a purpose, but we're not to get comfortable here. God has a plan, and there's a reason we're here. He has a a reason for your life and mine, but we must be people of integrity in order to bring glory to God. So I want to look at an acrostic real quickly with you. You might want to write it down. What does it mean to be an alien? First, it starts with your attitude, an attitude of reverence, an attitude of humility, an attitude of trust, an attitude that says, God is at the top. I'm just his servant. I'm just his follower. I just do whatever God says. And so it takes away pride. It takes away agendas of your own. It takes away uh, our thoughts and abilities. That doesn't matter because we are serving God. Everything is about what he wants. It's about him, not about us. It starts with a basic attitude that refuses to elevate yourself or to think of self. L is for locked in. Locked in on whatever God wants, on God's word, God's ways, God's will. Just locked in on that because that's how I have to live. That's what I have to believe. That's, That's the, the, the mantra of my life, being true to God's commandments and godly principles, whether the world agrees or not, whether the world buys into them or not, when the world rejects the unchanging standards we live by, we still know what to do. When the whole world is turning upside down and people are pushing other values on us, we still know what to do because we're locked in on whatever the Word of God says and we know how to live. It affects our diet, our lifestyle, our morality, just about every kind of choice we could ever have to make. I is being identified with God, being identified with God's people. Our home is heaven. We're citizens there. God has told us who we are. He has told us what our lives are to be about. And God has given us identity, and it's not the identity I chose, it's the identity He chose, that I belong to Christ. That's what Paul said in Galatians 2.20, isn't it? He says, I now live for Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's about Jesus now, and I am identified with him and with his people. E is for engaging our culture. Engaging our culture. Yeah, we don't belong here. Yes, we don't fit in exactly, but we're here for a reason. We're here to engage with people. We're here to love people. We're here to serve people. And Daniel, even though he was thrust into a totally different culture, did the best he could there. And in fact, God blessed him that he rose to the top of that culture and was able to influence and advise the, the most powerful men on earth. What a, what a role. You may not have that role. I may not have that role. But we still have a purpose. And God has something for us to do. And so we need to build a reputation for service and for helpfulness 
that is unmatched and people will say, you know, that person really loves us. That person will do anything for me. And that person is God's person. And they're the person I count on to be there for me. And we engage the culture in a way that brings glory to God, just as Daniel did. Final letter is N, no compromise. No compromise in the big or small things. Making choices about what we eat and what we wear and what we drink and how we live. But also standing firm, standing tall when those big challenges come up, as they will. You're going to have a time when somebody's going to put up a a statue and going to say, bow down to this. It may be a boss. It may be a friend. It may be a peer that's trying to influence you. It may be a family member that draws a line and says, you've got to do this. I don't care what you believe. I don't care what God tells you to do. I'm making you do this. And you have to take a stand. Will we disobey the laws or ideas of man when they conflict? Uh, conflict with what God says? Will we take our stand even when the consequences of that choice are life-threatening? There must be no compromise. I wonder if you ever heard about little Sammy. Sammy was a little boy in Georgia who loved to fish. He had summer days and we played with his friends, but the best thing he loved to do was go fishing. So one summer morning, he woke up early and decided he was going to go fishing. It's a perfect day for fishing. He grabbed his pitchfork and usually go out into the woods and he would find some worms there and put them in his bucket, grab his fish pole and go. So he's out in the woods, he's looking for worms that day and he turned over a stump he'd never turned over before and under there just wriggling, writhing uh, worms, he thought. Picked them all up, put them in his bucket, got so excited about a 15-minute walk down to the pond. He takes out the first worm and he double hooks it to make sure it doesn't slip off and, and he throws it out there and he's saying, man... I don't know, that's something on my hand there. I don't know what that was. Well, within 30 seconds, this fish hits the line, and he reels it in this big catfish. He says, that's the biggest fish I ever caught here. This is fun. So he reached into the bucket. He pulled out another worm, put it on the hook, threw it out there again. He says, that kind of stings. Well, that's okay. The fish are biting, so he got another fish, pulled it in. This keeps going, and his hand is hurting more and more, but pretty soon then it becomes numb. And he just forgets about it because he's having so much fun fishing. Finally gets to about eight fish on his string and he says, you know, that's about enough. I still a lot of fish out here in this pond apparently, but that's all I can carry home. I'm going to go. So he grabs up his his string of fish and his pole and his bucket. He starts walking home down the dirt road. And as he's walking down, the sheriff passes by in his car. He says, hey, Sammy, how you doing? He says, where'd you get that string of fish? That's a fabulous amount of fish. He says, yeah, yeah, the fish are really biting today. I don't know what it's about, sheriff, but I think it's these worms here. He says, well, let me see those worms. He pulls out the bucket. He shows it to the sheriff, and the sheriff is horrified. He looks at Sammy's arms, who are now both doubled in size, red. He's looking terrible, and the, the The sheriff sweeps him up and throws him in his car, gets his bucket and everything, and heads for the hospital before he can arrive. Sammy's dead. Because it wasn't worms he was fishing with, it was baby rattlesnakes. And he didn't know the danger of what he was doing. Even when the first sting came and his hand was feeling funny, he just thought, I'm having so much fun fishing, i just ignore that. And when the thing progressed, he continued because of the fun he was having, to ignore the signs that were being given him about the danger of what he was doing. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go. Sin will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. 
And sin will cost you a lot more than you ever wanted to pay. See, on the front end, all these promises are made. On the front end, the compromise looks like it's not so much. But in the end, you reap terrible, terrible results and consequences. Paul told us how to avoid compromise in Timothy or in Titus 2. He said, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2, verses 11 to 13. Powerful verses. God says, no compromise. That's how you live. You hold on to me. You live as an alien in this world, this godless culture, this pagan culture. You stand up for me. You engage the culture. You live here. You influence. You love. You serve. And then you go home. And you take as many people with you as you possibly can so we can all get there together. That's what our life is about. Daniel knew it. His friends knew it. Do you know it? We have some leaders today, some officers also that we're going to install as a congregation at the beginning of the year. We always do that. This message ties in with that today because they need to be people of integrity. They need to be people of no compromise. And today, if you're an elder or a deacon, if you're one of these other officers, you must live by this same standard. But it's true of all of us, isn't it? There's not one person more important to the kingdom of God and one person that needs to live at a higher level than anyone else. All of us that are disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, are called to live at this level. People that are going to come up here in a moment, and we're going to pray for them, are just an example of what every Christian needs to be living by and how they need to live. I'm going to invite some people to come up. I want to invite, first of all, our three elders to come forward now, and I want to pray for them, and then they're going to, in turn, 